Ronan Farrow's explosive New York Times bestseller, Catch and Kill, is now in paperback and newly updated for 2020. Meticulous and devastating, raves the Associated Press. Part All the President's Men, part spy thriller. For more information, visit catchandkill.com. Hello, you are listening to Inside the Hive with Abby Tracy. Wait, 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 wait. Abby, Abby, Abby. <laughs> I, I know I know you're interviewing me today for the first half of the show, but you don't get to do the intro. I do. It's, it's my podcast. It's my it's podcast. It's your podcast now. now. Yeah. It's Taking a, over uh, it's the an Abby incursion. Show. <laughs> well, Abby, welcome to the show. Uh, so we're actually gonna do a little special switcheroo, a la kind of uh, old school John Kelly podcast, and you are going to interview me first, and then I'm going mm-hmm. to interview you, and should we just take it away? You want to you you start? Yeah, yeah okay, I'm in charge, Nick. Come right. on. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah, so Nick had an excellent story this week about sort of the next Cold War and the shape that is currently taking. Uh, Nick, can you tell us a bit about the awesome story that you wrote that everybody who is listening should certainly read? Well, I've been writing about this topic for a little while now Mm -hmm. about how spies, you know, these, you have this kind of traditional thinking around spies that would come from other countries and try to infiltrate the U.S. government. And what they would do in the past was they would go to the FBI and the CIA and other agencies and, um, Mm -hmm. and they would try to steal our secrets and figure out what we were doing. But also they would, uh, even back in the 70s and 80s, they would go to Silicon Valley to try to get access back then uh, to the the plans for the missiles and things that we were building okay. and the chips that people mm-hmm. were using to um, to build these chips, build these missiles, and it was all, of course, that's how Silicon Valley began building these things. And uh, there's some amazing documents online. You can look them up, like old CIA documents of when they uh, they had spies that had made it into like Intel and places like that. And Ooh. so, but that kind of stuff went away for a long time because. We were building stupid things like photo filter apps and social media and so on. <laughs> and it's now kind of come full circle. And you have um, you have spies not just from Russia, uh, but mostly from China who are trying okay. to get into Silicon Valley. They're trying to get into these um, companies. Uh, and they're doing so because the most powerful technologies on the planet now are artificial intelligence and driverless car technology and IP for telecom and 5G and all those different things. And mm-hmm. so I had an update to the stories I've written on this uh, where I profiled, um, there was an investigator I met who uh, was telling me a story about a piece of telecom that had cost you know hundreds of millions of dollars to make and um, had been in high-tech R&D labs in, in Silicon Valley. And um, and soon after they had finally, this telecom company finally released it, um, the Chinese had their own version, which was even better and faster and so on. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't figure out what had happened, so they sent these teams into this company to try to figure it out. And it turned out that uh, these these little telecom hub things are at the bottom of the the ocean, and that's how they mm-hmm. route information around the world. And uh, the Chinese had sent divers down there, and they just went down, grabbed one, and took it back to their lab and copied it. And so mm-hmm. that was the yeah. So was the concern initially that it was more you know their tech you know their company had been infiltrated, but then it really turned out that this was just physical sort of stealing of technology that happened. Well, I think that the the larger picture is really that that. You, we have a society today where, um, where everything is digital, 
But when you look forward five, ten years, five years from now, mm-hmm. it's going to be this times a thousand. I mean, the iPhone is only 10, 11, 12 years old, and look how much it's changed society. You know, you have Teslas that drive by themselves. We have every single solitary thing we watch, listen to, touch, take pictures of, goes through some sort of electronic device, which which was not the case ten years ago, um, mm-hmm. and and so the 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 uses of technology are rising exponentially. And what's going on right now is that you have China, um, or as uh, Donald Trump says, China. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <I can't. laughs> um, sorry, um, and they and and you have this situation where. The technologies that we've built, they have been smart enough to say, we're not going to let you put those in our country. And so mm-hmm. Facebook and Google and all these things right, right. are not in China because we could use those technologies to spy on people in China, of course, right? And to know totally. more about them. And yet, in the U.S., all of our technologies, your iPhone, your laptop, uh, the website you go to and the server it's stored on is maybe it's designed in the United States, but it's built in China. And so mm-hmm. we don't know if on the chips that we have on our devices, if someone's listening. And um, and so the big fear right now is that the Chinese have kind of leapfrogged us into this new f- uh, 5G era, which we can talk about a little bit. And, yeah, um, definitely. And they uh, they could be listening to what we're doing. And as we look to the future five years from now, if we adopt their technologies to, to control our infrastructure and everything, uh, they could have complete control over the U.S. with the touch of a button. So, yeah, back to the 5G thing. So talk a little bit about why there are so many concerns about that being sort of like the next front in this kind of back-and-forth technology war that we're seeing with China and other countries, but you know, primarily China. Why are the concerns so acute regarding 5G technology versus you know, physical devices or things of that nature? So the way 5G works, so the, so the way, actually the way your, your, your life works today is if you pull out your phone and you send a text message, it can go over the, uh, you know, LTE network, um, or for some people it's 4G, or for some people it's 2G, depending on where they are in the Midwest. And if you watch a video on your iPad, it can go over your Wi-Fi network, which goes over your cable router, uh, or your DSL router. If you turn on your television and watch you know, the six o'clock news, God knows if anyone listening to the show actually ever does that, but um, uh, I hope not. Um, the, you know, you're you're using traditional copper cables that are run under the, the earth. There are people that use uh, satellite um, internet and so on. The way 5G would work, um, oh, it does work, is that mm-hmm. everything, not only is it a hundred times faster than the wireless services that we use today, but every single solitary thing would be on that same network. And so that means... Everything from your own personal devices at home to the infrastructure uh, that operates our the driverless cars in our country or the cars that have some, you know, stop and go at start abilities. These are not just Teslas. These are tons of different cars that can do this now. Uh, it would be the things that operate and connect the power grids. It would be the things that uh, people in the State Department use to send emails to covert agents. It's just everything. And so yeah. if we... 
if we put the if if so what's happened is what China has done from all these experts I've spoken to about this as for the reporting for this piece is they've they've taken a lot of the IP from the United States um, things that we've been developing for years and years and years and they have taken it and stolen it and then mm-hmm. they have put it taken it back to their labs and made it better it would be almost like if you were building uh, the greatest house ever built that's, you know, capable of withstanding earthquakes and, and tornadoes and this, that, and the other. And, and, and I, it was your neighbor and came along and took it, took your plans and then uh, added, you know, some more features. Um, that's essentially what they've done. And so now they have this 5G network, these capabilities built by Huawei, which is the company that's been in the news a lot lately. And, um, and they want, everyone in the world to adopt them. And if they do, you have the Chinese that could listen to every phone call, every email, every text message. Um, they could easily, the snap of a button, turn off the power grids. Um, uh, you, I know you cover the State Department a lot, and there was a report put out by the State Department a few years ago, uh, a couple of years ago, that said if our power grids were to be shut down from mm-hmm. hackers or an EMP or something like that, that 90% of the United States would be dead within a year because everything we touch relies on technology and uh, right. electricity. And so, so the big, so the, so I will say this, and I know this is probably the first time I've said this in the two plus oh, years. I'm, I've been I'm doing getting this ready. Podcast. I think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> It's the one thing I do. I agree with Donald mm-hmm. Trump on. Yeah, I totally. I do. I. I think he's right about it. I don't. You know, like I think that. Um, I think. I. You know, there's no one that we haven't really heard enough reporting about how Obama and his administration dealt with this because this is something that does go back um, a couple of administrations. But, um, but you know, good for good for him for standing up to this because. Uh, if he didn't, um, and if his administration didn't, uh, five years from now, we could be in a world of of just hurt that we wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to get out of. Yeah, no. And, and I guess, it, so one of the things that really stood out to me in your piece is you made this point sort of toward the end about you know, on a personal level, people are just really bad at this. People are really bad at protecting their data, at protecting their own devices. You know, everybody, you'll download apps that you have no idea what their origin is and, you know, phishing scams, like people fall for them all the time. I got an email from my mom today that she clearly fell for a phishing scam. So have to deal with that later. But it's one of those things where like (laughs) on an individual level, people are really bad at this. Like they're bad at protecting their data. And when we're looking at something like this, I guess... My question to you is, okay, if on a personal level, people are really bad at this, what does the U.S. government do? Do you think you, you know, you did mention that on this Trump is right? What would it look like to sort of prevent the Chinese government or other governments? Because you also mentioned other governments in your piece as well, whether it's like Iran or Israel even or Russia. Um, When we're looking at what the U.S. government can do, what do you think that actually looks like in terms of this 5G threat? And do you actually think that our government is up to the task? I'm thinking back to, you know, the Facebook hearings or the various congressional hearings that we've had with all these tech companies and sort of the ineptitude that was on display by our elected officials. Yeah, um, great question, and um, I'm just trying to think of how to unpack that. So, so it was a big one. <laughs> it's a big <laughs> it one. Like well, I'll, let me just. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to focus on China for one second because okay. I think that that there, and then we'll go to Israel and all those other ones. Um, you know, we've really kind of we have screwed up, I think, in this country by being. You know, I think capitalism has come before 
anything, um, and which is always the case, right? Uh, but it's I think it's really coming home to roost right now because we a lot of our technologies are built ways was built in Israel. Um, you know, it's mm-hmm. the, and and while Israel is a partner, they're also going to watch you know look out for themselves, and so we we don't know what they could be doing with the technology and the access to the things that we have and 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 the information. You you know, of course, Russia uh, would would love to to disrupt anything they could in the United States. It's just kind of become like a little bit of a game for them at this point. Um, Iran, exactly same thing. Like you know, let's just say that the United States said. Uh, we're going to bomb Iran because we don't like something they did or said or something like that. And Iran could say, well, we're going to shut off your power grids. Or we know uh, all those emails that those senators sent with those, uh, you know, pictures that they shouldn't have sent. Whatever it is, like there's a million different things that you could think of. Um, So with China, though, what's so fascinating is with President Xi, he is, um, uh, every year he does this thing where he, um, he, he does a, it's like a televised, like state of the union from his office. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and on the, the back walls of the office are these bookshelves with rows and rows of books. And one thing that a lot of people like to do, it's like become kind of like an Easter egg game thing is they look to see what the books are every year. Cause it's always changing. Oh, interesting. And this last year, mo- there was a, there was a number of books about artificial intelligence. And one of the things that China has been doing really, really successfully is is pushing forward on their AI capabilities. And so when you kind of think about this idea of like putting 5G in the United States or the United Kingdom, which is still kind of thinking about whether or not they should do this, mm-hmm. um, you, in China, you they have these censorship uh, situations where there are a million, two million people that are monitoring everything that's said on the internet and they're removing things about Tiananmen Square and and anything that, you know, where they call President Z, who they say looks like Winnie the Pooh, anytime that's ever mentioned, it's taken off, things like that. And um, and part of the way they do that is with people, but part of the way they do that is with, with AI. And so if China were to get into um, the situation where they could actually... Um, have technologies or already do in the U.S. with their AI technologies, they would be able to know everything. And that, I think, is the really scary part. Mm-hmm. Um, the the second part to that, I think, is that we are, and I spoke to um, uh, a security researcher from uh, Virginia Tech who explained this to me uh, in a pretty terrifying way, was that that oh, we <laughs> don't know how to build the chips that we are reliant upon in in the United States, we just don't, we can't do it. We, it, it just, it doesn't exist. There's no technology, there's no factory. Apple couldn't do it. It's just, it would take so long to get that infrastructure up and running uh, that we would miss an entire generation of technology. And so, so it's unclear what the solution is to this problem at this point, mm-hmm. because there's only a couple of countries that can build chips and they are not countries we can trust. Interesting. No, uh, that that is a terrifying um, thing to sorry, think about. Sorry to be a little bit scary uh, no, there, but no, you know. it's good. I mean, I I think you know you've seen this and you've seen sort of this outsourcing happening, um, but I don't think people have really. It's interesting to sort of hear you connect the dots, right? So putting the five G with the fact that our hardware or these consumer products aren't being manufactured in the U.S. and different stuff like that. But so I guess you know back to this point of what do we do? What are your thoughts on how 
on whether the U.S. is up to the task or what that might look like. Does it look like a select committee or a group of people that actually know technology who are put together or, and tasked with figuring out how to protect, protect our infrastructures and against some of this technology or against, you know, some of these concerns that you've laid out? What does it look like? I, I guess I'm back to, you know, these various congressional hearings that we've seen play out over the past year, year and a half, two years, and just the lack of understanding that was on display by our elected officials. You know, holding up, I remember there was maybe one lawmaker, he was holding up an iPhone asking the head of Google if it was spying on him. And it's like, I didn't make that. You know what I mean? So it's, I guess, like, what are your thoughts on how we could address this? Would it be like a commission or a select committee? I, what do you think is the solution? Is it going to come from Silicon Valley? The response, is it going to come from the government? I don't know. I think that it's going to require the government getting involved. I, look, I think at the end of the day, one of the things we've seen happen in Silicon Valley as of late is that there are employees that don't want their techn the technology of those companies to be used for defense. So you had a, a big mm -hmm. Google uproar where they were like, you know, we don't want you, you building AI technology that's going to be used by the Department of Defense. You have employees at um, an Amazon that are pissed off that that their technology is being used uh, to do facial recognition uh, with immigrants and things like that. You, you, you know, you have all these different situations. And, and I think that, that we kind of, we have to kind of make a decision as to what it is as a country that we are trying to do. And, and right now it's been, it's just been capitalism. It's been Facebook mm -hmm. beating Google, beating Apple, beating, beating, IBM beating, you know, Microsoft and so on. And and I think that the problem with that is that it's great for all the people that work at these companies and it's great that we have an iPhone that can take pictures in the way it can and we can connect with our friends on Facebook across the mm -hmm. world. But what we can't do is um, defend ourselves against some of these other countries. And I think that that part of this actually does play into the antitrust stuff, into the regulation stuff. I think that mm -hmm. these, you know, these companies have become too big. They have too much power. They do whatever the hell they want. And I think it's, I've, I've said this for a long time. I mean, at least a decade I've been saying this, but um, I think that, that the government needs to step in. And it and it's funny because I remember when I first wrote about this for the New York Times about 10 years ago, and I said that tech, the government is often 10 years behind technology uh, and yet here we are 10 years later and they're finally talking about antitrust. Right. No. Uh, sort of jumping off that, explain a little bit what the conversation looks like right now around, around antitrust and tech companies and sort of how it's playing out. I mean, you have presidential candidates talking about it. You have Silicon Valley reacting to it. Just kind of give a lay of the land so people get a sense as to what the points of tension and uh, the points of the conversation are right now. So, um, so right now you've had you've had instances where these companies have grown so big and so quickly that um, it's almost like it's like whiplash in society. We we don't know when, you know. I mean, look, Facebook was in the in someone's dorm room in Harvard, um, uh, you know, a little over ten years ago, and now has two point four something billion users and. Um, has more information on Americans than any government agency in the history of the United States or the world. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, uh, is able to tell if 
you know, there's tech technologies that exist that can use Facebook to tell if you're if you're if you're straight or gay, if you're black or white, if you're Republican or liberal. They, it just things that without you even saying, um, just based on your actions and and so on. Um, and that's pretty scary stuff. Uh, and um, not to mention th- facial recognition too. And facial recognition stuff is just is is crazy. And what you're seeing, so what you're so. What you're seeing with the facial recognition is that San Francisco, the first city in the United States to ban facial recognition, is the one where it's being built in right. you know, there. And so it's like, you know, there's an example of government understanding in real time what's happening while the rest of the – I'm sure that there are senators uh, in Congress that have no idea what facial recognition actually is. Um, and um, and so, so you've also got – you've got – Amazon, where they they have a lot of different antitrust practices that are going on. For example, one of the things I talk about a lot about is their batteries. Um, yeah. So if you go on to Amazon.com and you say, "I want some AA batteries," the first thing that will come up is Amazon's uh, AA batteries. And if you want to buy a pack of twenty-four, it'll be ten dollars. And right below that is the Energizer AA batteries, which is eighteen dollars for the pack of twenty-four. And so what fa- what Amazon has done with the massive massive amounts of data that it has is it's figured out the low margin businesses it's figured out how wh- where you know the it knows the number of people that buy them and the number mm-hmm. of places that they you know how many times they do it and it's figured out oh batteries is a good business for us to go in because we can um, make them cheap, sell them cheap, and we can ha- put them higher up on our platform so that everyone sees them instead of uh, our competitors. And that is an antitrust practice. And I, so my theory is that the things that are going to bring Amazon down are those little innocuous things that they don't think is a big deal. That's just an, an additional um, you know, line on their spreadsheets that is actually a pretty huge deal. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have... Um, uh, you have Google um, and, you know, all of its the ad things it does where it highlights ads that are more beneficial to Google products. And it's, you know, Google knows this is a terrifying thing. So Google knows every single solitary thing you've ever bought from Amazon because Google actually scrapes through your email and looks for Amazon receipts and then analyzes all that data to d- deliver better ads to you. So you're like you're using these products and you think it's great, but at the same time, it's terrifying. It's, you know, it's that they're all looking and reading and doing whatever they want with you. Um, and so finally, what's happened is, you know, a lot of the times with these antitrust cases is you don't want to take one on unless you know you can win. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and these companies are worth billions, if not trillion, a trillion dollars in some instances. And, um, and so the government has finally decided, okay, we can't do this by, by being in different groups. We're going to kind of Focus on one. So you've got the FTC going after one, the Department of Justice going mm-hmm. after another, and um, and um, and I think that you're finally going to start to see the beginnings of something changing. And the last point of that is that if a Democrat wins in 2020, uh, God, please let that be the case. Um, uh, I just almost vomited. Um, oh, if a Democrat wins in 2020. Um, uh, there's not a question in my mind that um, that these companies are going to be broken up, and they absolutely 1,000% should be. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So I recently had to mail something out, a physical piece of paper in an envelope. Remember those old things? And I was trying to go to the post office, and three weeks later, this thing was still sitting in my bag because... 
You can't do that. There's traffic, there's parking, there's all the, the, you've got to lug big packages. It's a complete hassle. So what I did instead was I went to stamps.com and it is a game changer. Stamps.com is one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates those trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts that you can't get at any post office anywhere. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services from the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer, whether you're a small business sending invoices or online seller shipping products or even a warehouse sending thousands and thousands of packages a day. Stamps.com can handle all of it. Uh, simply use the computer to print out official U.S. postage uh, for 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, you just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in your mailbox. It's that simple. With stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. That's a huge deal if you're sending a lot of stuff. Uh, <clears throat> not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Uh, Stamps.com is uh, a no-brainer. It saves you time and money. It's no wonder that over 700,000 small businesses are already using Stamps.com. So right now, our listeners are going to get a special four-week trial plus uh, postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment if you go to stamps.com and sign up uh, and use the code HIVE. Once again, that's stamps.com and use the code HIVE and you'll get a four-week free trial plus a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Once again, stamps.com and use the code HIVE. So when we're talking about 2020 and we're looking at candidates, obviously, you know, there have been a number of folks who are on the campaign trail now for Democrats who have talked about this issue. What is your take on some of the, I'm not sure how close you're following the various proposals or things that they're saying. What is your take on how they're approaching this topic? Like, are you impressed by the way that they're talking about, you know, breaking up Facebook or breaking up big tech or these antitrust possibilities? Like, what are your thoughts on how it's playing out on the campaign trail? Well, I think that, you know, we got to give Elizabeth Warren major, major props for this because she was the first one to really come out and talk about how important this was and, and in a very mm -hmm. intelligent way, succinctly done her homework. Like, you know, I think that no matter what happens, she deserves massive credit for this. Um, and after she did, you know, other people were like, oh, tech, I've got to talk about big tech. And um, <laughs> and I think that, yes, yes, you know, you, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But what's but you know it's going back to a question you asked earlier about like you know your mom um, had downloaded something that uh, um, you said was um, you know probably spyware or something like that like uh, I mean don't even get me started my mother-in-law <laughs> literally so I she she it's on the phone she literally she had this is one I'm just going to give you a little anecdote here she gets a a, a pop-up that her um, her computer has a virus and to call this phone number. So she calls the phone number and then she pays like a couple hundred bucks to get the, the, the virus off. And the whole thing's a scam. There's no fucking virus on her computer. It's just some <laughs> scammy number that she falls oh, for. Oh, that's so sad. So, and, they're, and they're like, they literally are on the phone with her and they're like, we're tunneling into your machine now. Like the guy's probably playing solitaire as he's like saying these things and then he takes the credit card. Another thing like that she got scammed with was... Um, uh, a, a photo, um, it was a thumb drive to back up your photos. And in uh, oh, the thumb drive, they were charging like $120 for this thumb drive. Like th the same thumb drive from just anywhere is like four or five bucks. 
and they were saying it was a photo backup. Um, and it's like, you know, there are all these scams. Anyway, the reason I bring this stuff up is that uh, Congress is no, no different when it comes to these things. There are, there are really dumb, dumb politicians running this country, especially when it comes to technology. I, you know, I, I've been, I've written a, a couple of books now and, uh, and for both instances have, have actually spent some time with some Congress people for brag stories I've done. Humble and brag there, Nick. No, it's not, it's not, I'm, it's not, <laughs> I'm what, what it, no, no, what is so fascinating to me is how unintelligent a, a number of them are. And some of them are super smart and, and, and got there because they are super smart. And some of them, you are just like, what on God's green earth are you doing running this country? And I mean, come on, you've had to have had this experience. Oh, definitely. Yes, I have. And even just when you look at, for instance, the, the Mark Zuckerberg hearing, I think was such a good example of this. You know, after the hearing, the Facebook stock spiked, like it hit a new high or something like that because you know, people watching it and people watching the hearing were like, oh, nothing to worry about here. Look at this inept group of lawmakers who failed to put Mark Zuckerberg's feet to the fire in any sort of substantive way. So I think it is interesting. And I I certainly, I guess that was my question a little bit is I don't necessarily think that people who don't understand technology can really tackle these questions about, okay, how do you break up Facebook? Okay, what does that actually look like? Okay, what is the difference between, you know, Facebook Messenger and Instagram DMs for for some, you know, for different people? Or, okay, how does their ad model uh, actually play out on the internet? And how do they do like the lookalike advertising based off people's Facebook interactions? So I, I just find it really kind of curious as to how they actually do this because I don't believe that they have the knowledge necessarily to tackle it. And I'm not saying all of them, but I I certainly, you certainly wonder if they need to bring in experts who can, you know, adequately question the heads of these tech companies who understand what's really going on. Yeah, without, without a doubt. I mean, you, as you were saying, I mean, the, 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 the Facebook hearing was one of the most embarrassing moments I've ever seen uh, on television, um, on C-SPAN at least, uh, um, <laughs> and for for our country, I mean, it was uh, it was abysmal. It was truly and utterly just a joke. And there are people in those offices that understand this stuff, but for whatever reason, um, uh, the the people who sit up there with the gavels and behind the on the leather chairs are are, are not. Uh, uh, smart when it comes to this stuff and not aware of it. And I think that to me is infuriating. And I think that's for me, like, look, you you can have your opinions on AOC, uh, but the thing I will give her massive props for is that she understands this stuff um, really, really well. Elizabeth Warren understands this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, which which I think is what we need um, in, this, mm-hmm. in this country. We, we, uh, we need people up there who are... Um, who are are going to be able to question Mark Zuckerberg? You know, Mark Zuckerberg is. It's funny. He doesn't do press. Uh, they're very right. very calculated in who they talk to because he's afraid to have to answer the questions that would actually be tough questions. And um, you know, and that happened when he was interviewed by Kara Swisher um, last year, and right. he yep. screwed exactly. screwed up and and said that you know essentially that there are nice Nazis out there on on Facebook that you should probably believe um, or something to that effect. And I think that. Um, 
right. you know, you want to catch him, you need to ask him tough questions. Uh, and um, I would, you know, I would love to, to be there on the other side of the table uh, uh, questioning him about his role in uh, Facebook and uh, during the election. Um, but, you know, that, I don't get that opportunity, sadly. Nick Bilton, oh, 2020. Um, 2020. Um, yeah, but so so kind of jumping off that to look at another tech company, um, let's talk a little bit about YouTube and what we're seeing happening over there. It's been kind of a tumultuous week for YouTube, you could say. Uh, <laughs> that's probably understating it. But yeah, so, so talk a little bit about what we're seeing from like the moderating perspective or what's going on with their algorithms and sort of the criticism that they've drawn in recent days. So what's, what's interesting about, about YouTube is that um, we spend a lot of time talking about Mark Zuckerberg and, um, and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and all these people because they are um, they're big personalities and, and they, are, they do things that are you know, sometimes silly and sometimes not and, uh, and they get caught in fibs and, and they don't and, and so on. And one of the companies that flies under the radar is YouTube. And, um, you know, I remember interviewing Kevin Kelly, who started Wired um, last year uh, for this podcast. You should all go back and listen to it. It's a great interview. And he was, I said, you know, what's the most influential technology out there today? And he said, YouTube. He said, it's changing culture. It's changing the way people communicate, consume, create. He said that, you know, the there, are, I don't even remember the statistics, but it's some crazy number, like a, a years and years of footage that are uploaded every day, or something like that. And, 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 and YouTube makes a tremendous amount of money for Google uh, with its advertising, and they are they don't do a lot to try to stop bad stuff from getting on the platform. They don't do anything to try to stop. Uh, all this hoaxy stuff, you know, like the, right, the flat right. earthers and the mm-hmm. and the Nazis and the and the you know the the fake videos and all these things. Um, you know, anytime there's a mass shooting or some tragedy, you know, you go to YouTube, you type it in. The top twenty things are always going to be fake news uh, with you know calling people actors and and this that, and the other. And and YouTube does nothing to stop it until the until the media reaches out and says something. And the only reason they do it then is because if it if the meat, if the news gets out from from people I know who work at YouTube have told me this is um, advertisers back off and they don't like that and so it always mm-hmm. of course comes down to the money and um, and you um, so one thing that happened about two months ago a month ago was there was there were videos that people were reporting seeing parents where you know there are losers out there that take kids videos uh, and they you know TV shows and they rip them. Uh, cartoons and whatnot, and they upload them to YouTube for free, and the kids watch them, and they get put into the algorithm that says this is a kid's show, and like halfway through, there'll be a voice that'll yell, like, go and kill your mother, you know, go tell your father to go fuck himself, like, there's like, it's really fucked up stuff, like, go and like, get a knife from your drawer and stab your parents, like. Oh, man. No, these are, it's dark shit. Yeah. Some woman, a mom had reported here, you know, like seeing one of these. None of the people had, had, had seen them. And, and, and YouTube, of course, you know, was scrambling to try to figure out how to stop them. And people were deleting the YouTube app. We deleted it. We don't have it anywhere in our house uh, now because, it, you know, you don't know what. Because I've seen it happen where, like, you know, our kids are watching, you know, Fireman Sam or Blippy or something. And then the next thing you know, um, uh, sorry, it's good stuff, Blippy. By the way, uh, the next thing <laughs> I'll you have know, to check it out. yeah, 
uh, there's like it's the, there's these weird videos of like you know kids playing first person shooters and like my three year olds watching. I'm like, what is this? And um, and anyway, so they've one of the things that they've been getting in trouble about lately is um, there's like pedophilia stuff uh, on there and things like that. And the New York Times has been writing about it and so on. And so they finally said this week they're going to kind of wipe it all and clean it up. And um, and uh, the thing that I think is so frustrating. It's for me is that it's the same for all these companies. They all say it's too hard for us to find these things. Bullshit! You are so fucking full of shit that it's too hard for you to find these things. If you can, if you can target advertising to like a a nineteen year old who lives in you know the Midwest who likes you know Superman right. comics on Sundays, you can target this stuff. A and B. There are solutions to every single one of these problems. Facebook and Instagram said, oh, they couldn't come up with a solution to all the anti-vaxxer stuff that was being shared on their platform. And you know what Pinterest did? And I give them props for this. They made it so you couldn't search for anything related to vaccines on there. And instantly, everything goes away related to anti-vaxxer stuff. And so these companies, this is why the government needs to step in and do something, because these companies are they're such they're 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 liars. They are legit liars and all they care about is the money and their user numbers and until something bad happens and those money and user numbers start to be affected and then they're willing to do something. Um and so, you know, AOC right. if you're listening. <laughs> hey girl. Um no but so hey, and and Correct me if I'm wrong, too. Like, often when we're looking at this and when we're looking at YouTube's efforts in this area in terms of trying to moderate content, usually it's been sort of half measures, right? Like, only taking down, you know, the flagged offending videos, but not actually changing the algorithm that's serving these things up to people. But haven't they had more success? When you look back at... um, I know that they worked closely and that the U.S. government was actually working with them on trying to remove videos like ISIS propaganda videos, for example, and they found more success in that, which sort of seems to me to prove that, no, they can do this if they choose to do this. So I guess like what does it take for them to pay attention to these things? Is it public outcry? Is it going to be an entire New York Times series about the fact that they're serving up, you know, videos of little children that are, you know, as you said, like pedophiles are looking at, like, what does it actually take to motivate them? Does it just come down to like advertisers pulling out or public scrutiny? Like what is it? It's advertisers. It's it. Yeah. It's, it's this, it's sad and it's pathetic. And, um, but I knew someone who worked at, at YouTube who was a high up exec and I said to them, you know, what is it? What does it take? And they said, honestly, you guys doing your job and reporting on this stuff, and advertisers run away for a minute, and we lose money, and that looks terrible, and um, for us and uh, to our parent company, and we fix it. And um, and he said, you know, that just is what happens, and it, it sucks. Uh, and uh, this is someone who agreed that it sucks. Um, and I think that um, you know, I think that for for. All these, if it, look, if it were up to me, like these companies would be torn to shreds, and you know, wouldn't be allowed to have more than a hundred million users or whatever it would be, whatever the number would be, because I think that they are uh, the user numbers and the the corresponding ad revenue is all that drives them, uh, and it's disgusting, and um, and I think that they deserve to be completely broken up as a result of that because they're 
um, you know, there are good people that work at these companies. Don't get me wrong. Like I know a lot right, of people right. that work at these companies that are good people, but they don't get of to course. make these decisions. And for them, it's incredibly frustrating too. You know, they want to focus on, they want, they want to solve these problems. Um, um, I remember, think? sorry, oh, just real no, quick. No, I remember I did a story once on this guy at Facebook who was trying to, he's, his entire job was to try to push more empathy on the platform. Um, and he had a team of like, I don't know, half a dozen people. And it was great that they were doing it, but there were tens of thousands of people that were focused on advertising. And so it's just like, where are your priorities? Mm -hmm. No, definitely. And, and I guess, what is it, do you think, about YouTube that has allowed it to fly under the radar more than, say, you know, Facebook or Twitter? That's a great question. I think that it is um, that they are not in the news on a daily basis because they don't have the... There are not like um, it's. I think that the way the way the best way to think of it is if you look back, um, you know, during the Cosby era, uh, there were fifty, sixty, seventy million Americans that were tuning into one television show. Now, if you get three million Americans that tune into one television show, it's a massive hit. Most <laughs> of them are, are less than a million, and um, and when you think about if you look at the Cosby's and 60, 70 million Americans tuning in, now what you have is 60, 70 million different forms of video that are reaching 60, 70 million different people. And so so those bad videos um, are probably reaching, you know, of tens of thousands, a few hundred thousand people. It's not, it's like if, if someone sends a really shitty tweet um, or something like that, uh, you can... It, it it surfaces, it ends up in the news, it's it's focused on. And I think that with YouTube, it's impossible. There's no central stream to watch that we're all, you and I are not watching the same thing if we open up YouTube right now. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, everyone listening, if they opened up YouTube, we would all see something completely drastically different. And so it's hard right. to, I think, cover what it is that is standing out as a result. And I also, but I also think the other thing is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg makes a better villain, um, uh, mm -hmm. honestly, than the CEO of YouTube, and um, and at the same time, the CEO of Google doesn't talk to the press. Um, and I, you know, it's it, it's a closed it's a closed wall there. And so I think that that's another part of it. Mm -hmm. What role do you think sharing plays in it as well? So obviously, you know, when you're on Twitter, well, not only also, you know, so many journalists and people who are writing about the news and, and stuff are, you can find them more likely on Twitter or even Facebook. But I guess like, what role do you think sharing plays in it? Like the nature of Twitter, the nature of Facebook is sort of sharing content, sharing, you know, tweets, statuses, which then will be retweeted or shared with other people. Like, Whereas I, the way I think about YouTube is more of like an isolated sort of individual thing. Like I'm not going to watch a YouTube video and necessarily share it with anybody or like, do you think that plays a role in all this? Just the fact that, you know, the nature of Twitter and Facebook, it goes wider faster and there are more eyeballs and then, you know, more outcry in the event of something questionable. Whereas YouTube, it's sort of, uh, stews kind of on its own, or do you think that has less to do with it? Yeah, I, I think I think absolutely. I think that one of the things that that happens a lot is that um, we th we look at technologies and we think that they are they are very similar, and the reality is they are different down to like a binary little digit. Because let's take a look back at video, for example, when it first mm -hmm. came out on on social media. So 
uh, Instagram comes out with 15 second videos. Snapchat has 10 second videos and Twitter has six second videos, right? Mm-hmm. And you think, well, and, that, and everyone thinks that they're all the same thing, but they weren't. Those few seconds of difference made all the difference in the world for what those things became. So the six-second videos started to become these kind of comedy things on Vine. The 15-second things became these kind of promotional little videos on Instagram. The 10-second things on Snapchat became kind of like these throwaway things, partially because of the way the platform is built. You, like the, every little detail, the, every algorithm, every search result, every every aspect of retweets and things like that are going to be perceived as um, uh, they're, they're going to change the way the platform works and the way things go viral on it and so on. The thing with you with, with Twitter that, uh, you know, it's a, again, we, you don't pick up the newspaper very often. Mm-hmm. I should have stopped with that sentence right there. Cause no one really picks up <laughs> the newspaper anymore, but you don't go online to read the news very often. And, uh, and see a story where you say, you know, on Thursday, Bob Brown was fired because he wrote a comment on uh, YouTube saying X, Y, and Z. Uh, the same was really kind of true for Facebook. I mean, there are instances where people write, do things on Facebook that, that, that do bubble up. There are often vicious things like, you know, right. torturing someone on video or stuff like that. But 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 on Twitter, you it's constantly in, in, the, in the zeitgeist because – anything that goes it, it is designed to for virality so like right. there's the trending topics so uh, there's you know there's the retweet function retweet with comment like there's it there you can see the number of retweets there are algorithms that highlight the things that are being retweeted the most to put them in the timeline for you and so on and so the things that are getting talked about the most not just in on, on the whole platform but in an algorithm that says this person is not usually talked about or this 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 person's twitter feed is not usually talked about is is designed to find you and uh, uh, and so that's why it's different and so with youtube it's kind of the other way around where all they care about is getting the most number of clicks and views and things like that cuz then they can serve up the most number of right. ads and um and i think that that's the um uh that's the way it doesn't work mm-hmm. so interesting right, and last, not to say la- that they're Last oh, question for me, and then we're going to – I have a bunch of impeachment questions for you. Yeah, I guess like when we're looking at this and and we're looking at YouTube versus the others, do you think that this is going to be a turning point for the company or do you think no. it's going to be the same no. that it's we've seen with like Twitter, Facebook in terms it's of the same. It's the same thing until something, since something changes on the outside. You know, I mean, I think that um, – I think that – you have these companies that are run with the wrong ideals in mind. Um, you know, I wonder how they would act differently if they were private companies. You know, there are some companies out there that are private companies that do a lot of good and that don't allow certain things to happen on their platform. And I, look, let's give Pinterest props. Like they, they do, they yeah. put a lot of effort into making sure that, that they're not, you know, the next home for ISIS. And, um, uh, but I think that, um, you know, the people who are running these tech companies at the very top, all of them are just focused on on capitalism, and that's fine. But uh, I think they need to have some balance with um, uh, with actually doing the right thing. And, and so far, they have proven over and over and over and over again that that is not mm-hmm. in their best interest unless they're called out for it. 
Mm-hmm. So. And so you think it kind of falls to an outside force that's going to sort of separate or at least put daylight between their revenue models and this bad behavior on these platforms. Because I feel like that's sort of the common link that you're pointing to is it's like it's in their best interest to not moderate these instances or, you know, these horrible things that are happening on these various platforms because that'll hurt the bottom line. So your take is more set up a sort of an outside structure or system in a way that kind of separates that or takes that away from them, like that ability. I mean, look, if you could, the best case scenario would be that these companies um, are broken up. You know, I think that, you know, Facebook should not own WhatsApp and Instagram and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, they should be run by different people. They should have no interoperability uh, between their data sets and so on. Um, I think Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you know, he'll, he would probably want to go with Instagram, but he would probably get stuck with Facebook, which would be quite ironic. But um, uh, I think that, you know, Amazon should be too. Amazon should not be able to build competing products on its platform um, and using its data um target users to um, buy the things that it sells and to sell them cheaper. Um, you know, I mean, they do this in the stores too with 365 products. You know, it's like uh, they know how many people buy things at Whole Foods like unsalted butter. And so they make the 365 stuff the cheapest. And it's great that people can, can afford to buy organic unsalted butter for four bucks or whatever it is. But um but it screws over these smaller businesses that are just trying to make butter for a living, you know? And it's, I think mm-hmm. that I, I have a problem with the fact that you're running, you're running the data, you, you own the data set, you own the platform and you own some of the products on it that are competing with the things on the platform. It just seems like it's, it just doesn't seem right personally to me. Um, and then I think as far as the Google's concerned, they, they, they just need some massive oversight from the advertising stuff and the data they have. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like almost like I wish that, I wish that there was a scene at the end of um, uh, a fight club when they kind of blow up the credit unions, but instead they do it with all the data sets uh, that exist and we get to kind of start from scratch um, because, uh, you know, these companies are not not thinking in the best interest of the consumer. Um, mm-hmm. so. Maybe that'll be a remake, an updated yeah. remake. Fight we'll club. We'll talk to Chuck about Facebook. it. Facebook. <laughs> I like it. I like that idea. You're listening to Inside the Hive. With Nick Bilton. The New Yorker represents some of the absolute best writing in America today. They hold people in power accountable through rigorous reporting, compelling storytelling, both online and in print. The New Yorker covers such a wide range of topics, it's hard to even fathom from politics to news, international affairs, climate change, the environment, pop culture. Arts, fiction, food, humor, my personal favorite, the cartoons. Um, It's just beautiful storytelling, beautiful writing, incredible explanation from their calmness. I was reading today a piece about neoliberalism and Ayn Rand that just kind of ties it all together. Uh, They also cover in depth these stories that you just wouldn't think you could cover for so, it's, I mean, just fantastic. Paper jams, fault lines, stink bugs. Uh, I was rereading last night the incredible Pulitzer Prize story on fault lines in the United States and uh, the the big, big, big earthquake that will inevitably happen. Uh, You can go there to check out their theater critic. Um, You can look at Ronan Farrow's amazing reporting on Harvey Weinstein and Les Moufeds that that won him a Pulitzer Prize and essentially uh, unveiled how hideously terrible they had been in society. There's just so much to read, so many different topics from long to short to everything in between. 
the New Yorker is actually going to offer our listeners a very, very special tweet. You can get 12 weeks of uh, The New Yorker for just $6. Um, once again, 12 weeks for just $6, and you get a free New Yorker tote bag. Uh, I have one. I use it at the farmer's market. I know how ridiculous that sounds. Uh, <clears throat> you can get the home delivery edition and the print edition each week. You can get unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day, access the apps, online archives, the crossword puzzle, which I do all the time. Once again, you can get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6 plus your exclusive Exclusive tote bag. Go to newyorker.com slash hive. That's newyorker.com slash hive. Listeners get 50% off when they enter the code hive. That's H-I-V-E. Uh, well, this has been fantastic. Thank you for all your amazing questions. It is now <laughs> my turn to uh, take back the microphone and ask oh, you a couple. I'm drunk um, on power. I don't know if I can handle this. All right. So I have a question that I don't understand the answer to, and I'm just going to go straight there. Why does um, – so the Democrats, most of the Democrats in the House want to impeach Donald Trump, um, and Pelosi does not want to impeach Donald Trump. So this is a two-part question, and my first part is that mm-hmm. why. Okay. So I will. I would actually argue that right now what we're looking at is, one, I actually think Nancy Pelosi would want – want it being the operative word here, but want to impeach Donald Trump. I think we have to keep in mind that she is the head of the house and the head of the party really right now at this, at this moment in time. And I think one of the actual, one of the things that's going on based off conversations I had with, um, you know, staffers over the last couple of days, uh, who've spoken with and different lawmakers as well, you know, they don't have the votes right now. Impeaching Donald Trump is still politically toxic for a lot of members. And that's well, they different. Don't, they don't have the votes in the Senate, but they have them in the House. No, in the House. Like right oh, now really? there's only, yeah, like the numbers, sure, the the number of people who have come out in favor of impeachment is definitely growing, but there are still a number of members, a ton of them, that don't want to do impeachment because they view it as politically toxic in their district. So we're talking, you know, more moderate people. We're not talking about, you know, the AOCs or the, you know, Rashida Tlaibs. We're talking about individuals who are in more moderate districts, more purple districts, kind of closer to the middle, you know, the centrist type Democrats, and even some, you know, that aren't, you know, super far, far to the right within the Democratic caucus. And the thing that I've, one thing that I've heard is that Nancy Pelosi is putting off taking a vote sort of to cover for these Democrats who aren't there yet, who don't want to take this vote. And I also think, you know, she's right if her caucus isn't in line with impeachment, because the worst thing that the Democrats could do right now is take a vote on impeachment that fails, because that is the biggest gift you could give Donald Trump. That said, I think one of the really important things that is being missed in this conversation, well, two things. So there's impeachment, and then there's opening an impeachment inquiry. And though okay, so that's that was my next question. So what's yeah. the difference between what is the what is the result of them opening an impeachment inquiry? Because they can't impeach they can't impeach him. Period. Because of, they will never get the votes in the Senate, right? But what 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 is the is the benefit of opening an impeachment inquiry that they can inquire about things that they wouldn't be able to otherwise? Yeah. So so what it is is when you're looking at impeachment. So impeachment is the House could vote 
Trump to be impeached, and that could happen. And then it goes to trial in the Senate, which is presided over by Justice Roberts. Um, but that's a whole different thing. And obviously, you know, they don't necessarily have the votes over there. But what would go on in the House is opening an impeachment inquiry is different in that it they're opening essentially an investigation. So it's like, think of an impeachment inquiry as an investigation and impeachment would be the indictment at the end, right? Which then would get kicked over to the Senate. So it's like, you know, Robert Mueller brings an indictment against George Papadopoulos and then that, you know, would go to court. So think of like impeachment in the House as being the indictment that's getting then kicked over to the Senate for the trial is a good way to think about it. But so when you're looking at an impeachment inquiry, essentially what they're doing is they would just be sort of sifting through information. It can be the information from the Mueller investigation. It can be information from the various committees that have been investigating the Trump administration over the last two years and kind of collecting it. But they also have different tools at their disposal. So what we've really seen from the Trump administration is this blanket stonewalling in terms of congressional inquiries and congressional requests for documents and stuff. And when there's an impeachment inquiry, um, they would have a few more tools in their toolbox and that timeline. Because one of the major concerns, obviously, when we're looking at these battles between the White House and House Democrats is the time. Like, House Democrats have elite, like, have court cases and lawsuits and, you know, sort of legal opinions are all on their side. Like, people don't really question the fact that the House Democrats would likely win all of these battles with the White House in court, as we actually saw during the Obama administration with the Eric Holder, Fast and the Furious thing. It took like six, seven years, but ultimately Congress won over the Obama White House in that case. But so nobody questions that the court would likely side with the Democrats. The problem is the timing, right? Like, House Democrats don't want to wait six years to get documents from the White House. But when you would open an impeachment inquiry, that timeline would be truncated and faster, and you would have other tools at your disposal. So you have Democrats that are saying, we need to impeach this president in terms of we need to remove this man from office. And then you have Democrats who are saying, hey, we need to open an impeachment inquiry, which is like the first step in that process. So what do you think is is – when you look at what Mueller was saying when he did his press conference, is was he saying like, eh, guys, impeach him? You know, come on, I I left you all the the breadcrumbs, like get them before a little bird eats them, or is he? What is he saying? Do you think with with what he said? I think he is saying, yes, Congress, this is your job. He's saying, we have this OLC opinion that says you cannot indict a sitting president. And he said, this was a consideration in my decision not to reach a determination on whether the president of the United States obstructed justice. And basically, I think my takeaway from, well, one, also the report, like nothing Mueller said in that press conference was not in the report. He he made all those points, but you know we have a problem where people just aren't necessarily reading it. Lindsey Graham included, as he admitted twice during the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, which is just appalling uh, for a lawmaker. But I think one of the inter- one of the keys is yeah, he's saying that it is Congress's job to remove a president from office if they have committed crimes. And after that point, then the justice system kicks back in. So it's like once, and they left this door open in the report as well. They said, hey, we recognize that there's this OLC opinion saying you can't indict a sitting president, but 
Reminder, it doesn't protect a president who has been removed from office, and we could then bring, bring charges after that. So I think he's very much leaving the door open and says, you know, the way that we're looking at it, it's Congress's duty to either act upon this information and whether the president obstructed justice and if it qualifies as high crimes and misdemeanors. And after that point, if they do remove him from office, then, you know, we could bring an indictment against the president of the United States for those same, you know, charges that were outlined in or potential charges that were outlined in the report. Fascinating. Do you think that he will face an um, impeachment inquiry or do you think that it's the Democrats don't want to risk hurting themselves in 2020 and therefore they won't do it? You know, I don't think this is going to go away. I, I think, I'm not sure, people should definitely read a story that was in GQ that was written by Harry Reid's deputy chief of chief of staff earlier this week, Adam Gentleson. He, I think, sort of had the best distillation of the argument, the pro-impeachment argument for Democrats. And basically, his thing was, you know, you have Democrats now, they look back at 2018 and they said, hey, we didn't win on talking about Trump and Russia. We won on talking about health care. And you know, all these other things that really affect our actual voters, like real other policy issues, not Trump necessarily, not Russia necessarily, not talking about impeaching him, like really winning on those policies. And that's true. Like that did happen. But his argument in the piece was, okay, yeah, but now you have the House and you can't fill the space in a post-Mueller report world, in a post-Mueller you know Mueller press conference world where we have you know this pretty damning outline of all the ways in which the president may have obstructed justice and say, oh, no, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about health care. Democrats are trying to fill the vacuum and try to stay on that as their message. But his argument was basically, you know, you won't be able to. Like healthcare and talking about healthcare right now isn't going to beat out talk of impeachment. So it's not going to go away. The question becomes at what point does Nancy Pelosi's position and leadership's, leadership's position on this become untenable? And they're treating this as a political question. So one of the other things that lawmakers who I've spoken with have laid out as their point is okay. Do we are we framing the question of impeachment as a political question or a constitutional question? Is it my constitutional duty as a lawmaker to hold mm. Donald Trump accountable? Or is it a political question in terms of, okay, what happens if we open impeachment proceedings? Are we gonna face the same, you know, backlash that Republicans faced after they went after Bill Clinton? That's a political question. A constitutional question is about like duty. Do I have to hold this president accountable for this sort of damning uh, number of instances that Mueller laid out in his report? So that's like the framing. Leadership right now is treating it very much as a political question. You've seen Nancy Pelosi say that. You said Jerry Nadler, who's chairman of the Judiciary Committee, straight up this past week and call it a political issue. So the question becomes, at what point do, do the numbers and the polling change some of these people's minds who are sort of on the fence, you know, the individuals that aren't quite there yet. And one of the strategies that we've seen right now is Democrats continuing to try to call former White House officials such as Ann Donaldson, Hope Higgs, that was sort of like the big news earlier this week, trying to get these individuals before 
the House before these committees and question them. And then, you know, every time that the White House pushes back, that's sort of a black mark against the White House that might, you know, help sway public opinion. So one of the strategies right now is House Democrats are going to start, you know, doing all these various hearings. Like, for instance, bring John Dean out to say, you know, how corrupt this president is and talk about, you know, Watergate and different things like that. So they're going to continue to call people in the hopes that holding these hearings might shed light on, you know, the actions of this president, which the end goal then could be changing public opinion in terms of impeachment. And then, you know, you could have some of these Democrats in the House who are on the fence sort of move to the impeachment or at least impeachment inquiry stage, and then Nancy Pelosi will change her tune. She's really running cover for, I think, you know, a large swath of the caucus right now that's just not quite there. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Have you ever found yourself traveling through an airport and you're trying to drag your suitcase and there's nowhere to charge your phone and your flight's delayed and it's just a complete and utter nightmare? Well, that all changes when you have the away travel suitcases. They are unbelievably handy for today's modern age. They're the best traveling companion you can have. I have them. Our whole family has them. Uh, They were designed by a couple of people who ended up in that same situation, uh, stranded in an airport with nowhere to plug in their phones. And these suitcases are, they're made and designed for you and I for today. Um, All the suitcases are made with this amazing German polycarbonate, the strength that you you don't have to worry about it getting banged up or anything like that. They all fit in your overhead bins. Uh, They have these amazing interior features, these patent-pending compression systems where you can fit more stuff than you actually believe you can fit. It's like Mary Poppins when you're packing your bags. But the best part is they have these chargers and you can literally uh, plug in your phone to or your tablet or your computer, whatever it is, to your suitcase. And so you can sit at the airport or on your as you're walking to your flight or whatever, you get to charge your phone. It has literally been a game changer for me uh, when I've been traveling. And um, uh, I've helped other people charge their phones. Uh, other passengers have been a, a, good, a good co-passenger. Uh, this is a, a suitcase that looks beautiful, acts beautiful. It's got these wheels that you can move it in any single direction. It may not sound like a big deal, but it is. Trust me. You have to check it out. You, you really have to see the suitcase. For a limited time, Today, uh, Inside the Hive listeners are going to get $20 off a suitcase from Away Travel. All you need to do is go to awaytravel.com slash hive. That's A-W-A-Y travel.com slash H-I-V-E. Use the promo code hive. You'll get $20 off. Um, you can see videos of these examples. You can you can check out the suitcases. There's kid sizes and adult sizes and family sizes, and they come in all these amazing colors and, and different things. Um once again, total game changer for travel, awaytravel.com slash hive. Use the promo code hive and you'll get $20 off. So two questions. One is, so we had an instance where uh, Barr said he wouldn't testify recently, right? Um, and mm-hmm. it seems to have just kind of evaporated. Am I wrong there? Is it still kind of in the discussion points or? Yeah, so so they said that, um, so Barr said he wouldn't, uh, cooperate, and then they voted to possibly hold him in contempt of Congress. And now the messaging coming from the Justice Department is like, "Hey, if you back it off, like, and not quite go there yet, we'll have more negotiations on what we're going to share in terms of, you know, sort of the underlying evidence and the in terms of the Mueller report. So some of the other stuff that you know, what Mueller is basing his report on is what Democrats are seeking. 
if he do, if if he says I'm not gonna I'm not going to uh, testify, and they do hold him in contempt of Congress, d- d- does he go to jail? Like, what happens in that instance when you have the the head of the DOJ? That's did, how does that work out? <laughs> yeah. So so for any of these people, technically, like the threat of contempt for Congress, it it's a crime, and what it is is up to a year in prison or a thousand dollar fine. Um, obviously, you know, whether they would go to prison is a very different question, but, you know, I, I think one of the keys is it is another tool that Democrats have to use against, um, to use against Barr, to use against all these other individuals. And it just, you know, it is, it's not a good look to hold the head of the justice arm of the U.S. government in contempt of Congress, but really like it's like up to a year in prison, a thousand dollars, like when you're looking at it from that perspective, it's not so much. But also, like, the Congress does technically have um, the ability to uh, enforce their own subpoenas by having the sergeant of arms, like, arrest people, but it's, like, a very antiquated uh, tool that has the been used The sergeant forever. of arms. Yeah. <laughs> but sounds they have like that. A, yeah. Sounds like an episode of uh, Game of Thrones. Um uh, all right, last couple of questions for you, and we will let you get back to your 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 uh, real job here, um, writing about this stuff rather than blabbering away with me about it. This ha- is more fun. <laughs> we, well, this is more fun. It, mm-hmm. We are we are midway through nineteen. We, you know, we have um, not much longer before. I know it does sound like it's a long way away, but it's not that much longer before we, you know, really kind of gear up and start doing twenty twenty stuff. Is um, and before the general election kind of swings into gear and it's like the campaign trail around America, does Congress have a limited amount of time before they have to make a decision about what to do next and about whether to bring these hearings and actually bring impeachment inquiries? I mean, not technically. Like, technically, they can bring it at any time. You know, obviously, uh, they could do it at any moment that they want. I think one of the arguments that some people make is, oh, you don't want to get like too far into the election. Like that'd be a bad look. It'd distract from everything. But what's really interesting is also this idea that, you know, they talk about the fact that impeachment would be good for Donald Trump. And I just don't think that that is true. I just don't think any president actually wants to be impeached. Like, you you don't want to have Congress, while you're campaigning to run for president, holding all these hearings about whether you are too corrupt or, you know, you behave too poorly to hold office. So I think that that conversation, you know, falls flat like or that argument falls flat like so they can take it at any time some people are saying oh you don't want to get too far into the 2020 election but it's also like do we does anybody really believe that the president undergoing impeachment proceedings is going to help him i just don't know one of the really interesting things is we saw this so justin amash who's a republican uh lawmaker he came out, he was really the first to sort of come out in favor of impeaching Donald Trump. It was a big moment. Um, and what was interesting is so after he he kind of came out with this argument, really walking through all the ways in which Trump like obstructed justice, why he should be removed from office, blah, blah, blah. He held a town hall in his home district. And afterward, I believe it was the New York Times had an interview with one of the attendees there who said, 
you know, they're a Trump supporter. They don't want to see Trump removed from office. But they said, you know, before this, before Justin Amash and this town hall came out in favor of impeaching Donald Trump, they said, I didn't realize that there was anything damaging to Trump in the report. Like, they genuinely believed that there was nothing in it, you know, that didn't exonerate him. And I think it's, you know, a sign of our times, a sign of how hyper divided our media landscape is and sort of how hyper partisan it is. But it's, you know, I do think that there is likely uh, a number of Americans who fall into that similar category, right? They see, okay, the Mueller report came out, the president is saying he's totally exonerated, and nothing has happened to him since the report came out, so it must have been really good for Trump. Like, not moving on it and not opening impeachment proceedings, I do think actually strengthens the president's argument that yeah. Mueller did exonerate him. Yeah. And I think if you start doing that, if you start holding those, you know, if they were to open impeachment proceedings, I do think that, you know, you could change some minds who probably thought that the, you know, the Mueller report was nothing but rosy for Trump when it really wasn't. Yeah, I think, you know, I it's interesting. I I am I hate to say this, but I I have actually been I don't agree with him in 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 any way, but I've actually been impressed with how he has spun it. Uh not just the Mueller report, but everything. Like I it didn't occur to me re- until recently you know, we make fun of his we make fun of his tweets a lot because he kind of refers to himself in the third person and things like that. But he knows that that the screenshot of that tweet is going to be blasted on every news channel in newspapers, quoted in newspapers and articles and whatnot. And he knows that a lot of people will only see the quote and that the quote of when he says like, you know, Mueller exonerated Donald Trump and he's tweeting that or the president and like. He knows he he knows how to do this. Like he, th- this is like, um, and and honestly, from the perspective, I've been traveling a lot lately for work stuff and mm-hmm. and and speaking to people across the country who are on both sides of the in, in both parties, and they believe on on the other side of this, they believe the things that come out of his mouth, and they do not believe uh, they believe the whole impeachment thing. I mean, sorry, the whole Mueller report was just one big joke, uh, and the Democrats looked bad, and that it exonerated him. And it seems like uh, it all kind of backfired for the Democrats and that they probably need to do something if they actually want this to to mean something. Right. And, and I do think, you know, sort of looking at this, if it does get to the point where the Democratic caucus in the House is ready to impeach Donald Trump and it passes, um, you know, the articles of impeachment pass the House because Democrats have the majority there, and then it gets kicked to the Senate and everybody, you know, people are like, oh, it dies. You know, it goes to the Senate, nothing happens. You know, Mitch, you know, they're never going to vote in favor of impeaching the president where they have a Republican majority. But I think an interesting, yeah, that's that's probably true, right? But also, if that happens, if articles of impeachment pass the House, Mitch McConnell has to make a decision. Does Mitch McConnell not bring it to the Senate and then, you know, everybody sees that? No, but like, if you got to think about it like this. So like, it passes the House, Mitch McConnell chooses not to like, have the Senate vote on it because he's like, oh, you know, it's not going to go anywhere, blah, blah, blah. But then it's like the House has the last word. And you know that Donald Trump would want to see impeachment go to the Senate and have him come out victorious. 
But, and I think, you know, he has reason to want that, especially if we're gearing up for a presidential election. But in that scenario, also, then you have to, like, think about what is going to play out in the Senate. That's not going to be a good look for the president. And it's also going to put some Republican senators who don't necessarily like Donald Trump, who have broken with him in the past. I'm thinking like the Susan Collins, the Lisa Murkowskis, you know, the Cory Gardner, people who are in these seats that aren't necessarily safe are then going to have to make a decision. And then you might have more Republicans that are breaking with Donald Trump. And you're also sort of airing again, all these instances of potential obstruction of justice. So it's like, yeah, it would likely fail in the Senate. I don't believe that we're suddenly going to get, after you know all the years that Donald Trump has been in office, all these sudden profiles and courage of like now the Republican Party <laughs> suddenly has a spine. Like, no, that's not going to happen. You know, they've shown time and time again that they're unwilling to do that. But I do think that you know Mitch McConnell will be under pressure not to just let the House say, "Yep, like we passed articles of impeachment against this president," and not necessarily take it up, given especially who Donald Trump is and the fact that Donald Trump is going to want the Senate to squash it. You know, he's going to want them to say, "Nope, like it failed in the Senate." You know, that's just sort of his mo. But in that process, you're going to put a bunch of these Republican senators, sort of under fire and have them choose or at least like waffle on the decision. And then maybe we have more people who are like the individuals that were in Justin Amash's town hall who are suddenly aware that, oh, no, the, the report didn't exonerate Trump. In fact, like Mueller explicitly wrote in the report that it did not exonerate Donald Trump. So I, I just think, you know, the argument that this is impeachment will no matter what, help Donald Trump. And you hear that coming from his team. You hear it coming from other individuals that are hesitant, whether they're Democrats or strategists or people who are saying that. But I just don't, I, I think it's hard to picture a scenario wherein a, pre, a candidate running for president is undergoing the hearings and his, this damning information about him, which is laid out in the Mueller report, is getting aired for everybody to see. I just think you're going to get way more eyeballs and a wider awareness of what's actually in the report than what we're doing right now. Well, on that note, tune in to my YouTube channel <laughs> where I talk about <laughs> fake news and what's fake.com. Just kidding. Um Abby, this has been really fascinating, and I thank you so much for taking the time to chat today and for hijacking the podcast. Oh, it was so can, fun. You, you can take over any time you want. You have full permission. Uh, I'm not going to make you read the ads this week, so you're, you're very lucky. Okay. Um, nice. But, uh, Abby, thanks. This has been really great. Thank you so much, Nick, for having me. I appreciate of, it. Of course. Anytime. Thanks to my guest today, Abby Tracy. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these on Apple Podcasts or Radio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to my sponsors, Stamps.com, New Yorker, and Away Travel. Go check them all out. They're fantastic. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. And I will see you next week.